here we are. Uh, how's the parking lot this morning? Good, good. So you can't see this, but inside we're really testing people's memory of the songs. You get words this morning and no music. And uh, our song leader and Amanda and me are all getting tested too because we have no screens working up here. So it's good to be on our toes and be a little bit flexible. So uh, we are continuing our series, The Kingdom of God, Fear Not, Little Flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun doing all of this studying for this. And uh, last week we started by looking at some of how this longing for an ideal kingdom, for a kingdom ruled by someone who's perfect, perfect in mercy, perfect in justice, perfect in love, this idea of a better place, a place beyond the restlessness and the brokenness of this world. And each of us, it's bigger than each of our own particular broken histories. This longing, I suggested, is a very human experience uh, from secular rock bands who express it in their music to uh, even atheists in their own words uh, projecting and talking about a particular version of a utopian dream of something better that we long for. So the problem, of course, with uh, most people's utopian dreams is that a lot of times we want those on our own terms and by our own merit, and uh, we don't clearly want God to be a part of that. And because of this, the world we live in now, for most people, it kind of feels like some kind of giant version of the Hunger Games, where our lives, instead of uh, being a blessing that they were meant to be, are all about survival of the fittest and getting my own and taking care of my stuff and fighting over the scraps of limited resources. So last week I suggested also that the kingdom of God is a meta-narrative that binds the scriptures together, Genesis to Revelation. Uh, and so we need to explore that a little bit. You can't just take my word on this. So I, I, it's going to be a little different what I'm doing in the pulpit these next few weeks. It's going to be a little bit more teaching uh, to try to get us up to speed and see some of these narratives of the kingdom. And so we're going to start by looking in the Old Testament. So kingdom narratives. Abraham, who sets out to search for the city whose builder and maker is God, all the way to John's revelation, this hope of the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. You see, the, what this kingdom means for us and to us is... The screens are working. Thanks, Mike. What this kingdom means for us and to us is that this life that we live now, it doesn't have to be just one giant Hunger Games episode. Um, to some of our older members who not, might not know the reference, it's a movie reference, uh, it's basically a, a story about the survival of the fittest and kill or be killed and 
competition for these limited resources that we have. So in colloquial terms, Jesus comes to us and he says things like this uh, in plain language. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. So I like translations that say, instead of the time has come, they say uh, the time is fulfilled. And what this means, and Jesus, what he's claiming here in himself, is that all of history, all of human history, has been building up to this point, to this one time. And it's the nearness of the kingdom of God. And the word repent it really, it really literally means think it out again. Think it out again in light of this new reality that's available to you. In light of what I bring, this kingdom, think about your life management strategies. We all have life management, management strategies where we have to try to have wisdom with our resources. We want to build up the 401k or the Roth IRA. We want to be good stewards of what we have. We try to live this balance of, you know, where, how can I keep generosity and how can I hold on to the truth and what do I understand the truth to be? And we try to manage the relationships around us. We try to direct and shepherd our children. Uh, our parents still have words for their kids, at least mine do. And uh, that's part of our reality, our life management strategies. I've really enjoyed having my mom and dad be a part of the church here. It's been fun for our family. Uh, and Jesus comes to this environment, and he says, and he continues to say to us as well, in light of this new reality available to you, think about your strategy again. Repent, for this kingdom is available to you. Believe this good news. I think the kingdom of God is the meta-narrative of the Bible because I see how all-encompassing its scope is. Because really, this kingdom of God, it involves the entire notion of the rule of God and the reign of God over a chosen people. So this morning... We are going to be looking at the kingdom of God in Torah, or the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All of this kingdom language that we find, and in upcoming weeks, we haven't even got to a real kingdom and kingship yet, because it takes a turn with uh, Saul and then David and then this line of kings and kingdoms in Israel. Uh, but already in the first five books of the Bible, we see the seeds of kingdom thought. Um, because without looking at the Old Testament and these words and without tracing the fullness of the implications of this right through the Gospels, through the rest of the New Testament canon, and into the pages of human history, and into our own lives in particular. Uh, without doing this, I think we miss something of the fullness of what Jesus was announcing, 
So I would like to suggest to you that the Gospels don't begin in the Gospels. And that's what these next couple weeks are going to be look at, looking at. And as a matter of fact, the Gospels don't end in the Gospels. There, the, it, there is something very special and crucial that goes on in the life of Jesus, in what he announces, and in his own person. But he does not stand in opposition to and apart from all of this history that is lived. He fulfills it. And it changes everything for everyone for all time and all time beyond it as well. Think about your life management strategy in light of this reality of my kingdom, Jesus wants us to, to see and to think. See, by the time that Jesus shows up, Jewish culture was already saturated with kingdom ideas. In fact, I would say that that first century environment, it was like electric with these messianic hopes and dreams. This could be finally the one, the one who can make it all happen the one who can restore, the one who will bring justice. The environment then, it was just this tension that was alive in the Jewish people, hungry for this. So as we look at these kingdom ideas in the Old Testament, I have to say and own that I just, for the, for the sake of what we're doing here, I'm going to be painting in very broad strokes so this is no, in no way exhaustive. There is going to be a lot of meat left on the bone, a lot of good treasure for thoughtful students of Scripture to continue to mine out of this. Uh, but because I'm painting in broad strokes, for the most part, I'm going to start with this Abraham narrative, uh, this story of Abraham. But really, I mean, you can look at it. There are elements of it uh, all the way back to the creation uh, the Tower of Babel, the competition between kingdoms already. All of these different ideas are already present there, even by the time of Abraham, that they take a special turn. So even as early as the creation, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground. Uh, already there is a charge given. Already there are responsibilities. Already there is a geography or a, lo a location, a realm of responsibility, a realm to subdue a geography that is filled with creatures that are to be ruled over. So words like subdue, words like rule, that is kingdom language. It's kingdom language. And no, that, no doubt there's a lot more that we can look at, and, and I would invite you to just spend time with these narratives and kind of think about the, them in light of what God is trying to do in bringing his rule and his reign and his kingdom to his creatures, us. But really, I'm going to begin with the story of Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So in the Abraham story, the idea of the kingdom is further developed in specific ways through the promises God makes to Abraham. So first of all, he just says, come. And so there is already this idea of pilgrimage that's born into the Hebrew mind and the Hebrew soul, that they are going on a pilgrimage in search of a special land, a specific land, or a specific place. And then there's the concept of a great nation, a nation called out from other nations. They are to become more than just a Bedouin wandering tribesman. That they will be such, become such a nation that they will be called great. And further, this nation is implied a special purpose here, a priestly purpose to bless other nations, to bless all peoples of the earth. So there's already a ch- kind of charge that is given. And then this, this covenant, as the story, the narrative of Abraham goes on, this, this, this narrative is developed more fully. You will be a father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, exalted father. Your name will be Abraham, father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. So from Abraham, many nations, even kings in his line. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. So all of these promises to Abraham, this is kingdom language, a promise of a specific land, a specific domain, a specific geography, a promise of many nations, even kings coming from your descendants. So this idea of fruitfulness, that there will be this multiplication of the people is in, inherit in kingdom, inherit in, in, in kingdom language. The kingdom is an everlasting possession to you and your descendants. God's blessings then are tied to covenant faithfulness. This covenant is going to go on forever. It won't be taken from you. This is an everlasting kingdom. All you have to do is keep up your end of the bargain. Covenant faithfulness and loyalty. So that last stipulation, of course, is the problem. Abraham could not live up to it, nor could any of his descendants after him. Not for hundreds of years. In all of human history, there's only been one person. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But you can already see how these seeds of kingdom promise 
are already alive in the patriarchs. A special called out people. A chosen people for special work. And these ideas, of course, blossom further in the Exodus events, where that's really where Israel becomes a people, the chosen people of God. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so I hope, I, again, because I'm painting in broad strokes, I can't get into all, of the, all the treasure that's there in the narratives. But I hope you have some familiarity, at least, with the story of the Exodus uh, from Israel. So if you've been in Sunday school uh, uh, throughout the years, hopefully these stories are bouncing around in there sometimes. You can read any of this. Just get the second book in the Bible, Exodus. And how after Exodus is happening, they go to this place, a special place, Mount Sinai, and a covenant is given and special commands. You can think of the Sinai covenant. <clears throat> covenant. It uses the same imagery as a marriage that is taking place, a special relationship <clears throat> where God says, uh, you are my people, and I am your God. There's a special connection being made there. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Kingdom of priests, holy nation. Language that I love to read about in First Peter. Are you beginning to get a sense or a sense of how these ideas of a kingdom are already beginning to take root at a very early time in the Hebrew soul? How, imagine this, for generations, these Israelites, this people of pilgrimage, these Bedouin nomads, they're hearing these stories around the campfire. They're seeing shrines set up from generations before them. And they're beginning to internalize all of these stories about kingdom. And you can see these seeds sprouting in the Hebrew soul. So I know this is dense, but I wanted to cram this all onto one slide. They begin to have an idea of a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, which our God has promised to us, Exodus 3, 8 and 17, where one day we will become a mighty nation, Genesis 12, 2, where God will defend us from all of our foes. Thanks, Dad. Numbers 23, 21 through 24, and 24, 8 and 9. And he will make us great, Numbers 23, 9 and 10, 24, 5 through 7, where we will live in unimagined peace and plenty, Genesis 49, 25 and 26, and Deuteronomy 33, 13 through 17. All we have to do is keep his, God's commands. God gives us hesed, and we must give him hesed in return. Hesed, that word, which means covenant loyalty or steadfast love. 
Genesis 17.9, Exodus 19.5. And then from us will come a divinely sent leader whom all the nations will serve. Genesis 49.10 and Numbers 24.17-19. So even this idea of a messianic king it comes very early in our story. I see him. This is by a pagan priest prophesying, by the way. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And in Genesis 49, it's talking about the promises to Judah the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the time comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch, and he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Great analogies there. Some of that lives on in our Lord's Supper. Think about that whole narrative, the vine and the branches. You see, these seeds of messianic hope and expectation, they're planted very, very early in the souls of the Hebrew people. And again, the problem, of course, is this. All we have to do is live up to our end of the bargain. God gives us covenant loyalty and faithfulness. And he expects from us covenant loyalty and faithfulness. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And in all of human history, there's only been one person who has lived up to their end of the bargain, to humanity's end of the bargain, who's lived a blameless life, a life completely faithful to every command and everything that God desires and wanted. So all the promises of God, all the wonderful, great and wonderful blessings of God, to whom do they belong first and foremost? Who can claim the blessings of God by right? These are mine. Doesn't the one, the only one who is able to keep up humanity's end of the bargain, doesn't that one have a special claim above all others? You see, by covenant faithfulness, Jesus Christ sets himself apart from all other people who came before him and from all who come after. And what does Christ do when he receives the fullness of these blessings by right? He takes the promises of God that are his because of his faithfulness, and he shares them again. 
See, this is the story of the kingdom of God, and this is why this is so important. God is so good. God is so good that he gives to us blessings. All of these promises that he makes to Abraham, they become ours. And all of these that are given in grace, all we have to do is keep our end of the bargain. No one can do it, and there is one finally who can. And what does Jesus do when he receives all of these blessings? He gives them again. It's the grace of God that gives them. It's the grace of Jesus Christ that gives them back to us again. It's given in grace through Jesus. We have grace upon grace. That's the story of the kingdom of God. And that's why this is so crucial to us. So Jesus is unique. I, I'm sorry, I know I'm supposed to be in the Old Testament, but I get so excited when I see these connections and I begin to make these connections in my mind because who is able to say but Jesus words like this? I am the gate for the sheep. All whoever came before me were thieves and robbers. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. In faithfulness, Jesus becomes the gateway to all of the grace of God, all of the promises of God. Promises God made originally to Abraham that are now realized fully in Jesus Christ. Promises like this, to be a great nation. A promise of descendants like the stars of the night sky. A promise of an everlasting kingdom. The promise of being a blessing to all peoples. All of those promises are alive and well in the kingdom of God, and they are continuing in force to this very day. Now, I know I'm jumping the gun a little bit because we haven't even got out of the first five books of the Bible. And already, I hope you can see in the ancient Hebrew faith that these ideas of kingdom are already being planted there, which will find their fullest expression then in Jesus Christ himself. So I want to end this morning where I began with this story of Abraham. You can come up, Dad. This is my invitation time for the prayers of this church to put on the Lord in baptism. But I, I pray that also the invitation is that you will begin to try to internalize and think about these words and these stories and just this language of kingdom that is born so early into the Hebrew soul and finds its fullness in Jesus Christ. Sorry. I guess my ear is changing shape. So let's end this morning where we began. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. What is Abraham feeling at this point? What kind of emotions would be associated with that? Have you ever gone on a great adventure? Have you ever gone on an adventure where, and it's maybe not geographically, and a kind of things that you have chosen in your life, that it's a whole other thing now you're discovering? As you begin to set out on that journey, whatever that journey is, what, do you, what emotions do you feel? There's all of these unknowns. We don't know how the story will end. There's a sense of adventure with that. And how about this? Have you ever looked up at the stars at nighttime? Not when you're by the city, not when it's overcast and cloudy. Have you ever been camping out away from a city? And even more so in a desert someplace or at high elevation on a clear night? He, God, took Abram outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. You see, the story of the kingdom of God, it has always, it has always been an impossible dream. It begins as an impossible dream given to an old man with a barren wife. It doesn't even seem possible. How could this possibly make sense? How could this possibly be real? But Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord credited to him his righteousness. You see, this doorway into the kingdom of God, it has always been a matter of faith. It's always been a matter of trusting God. And it seems an impossible dream in Abraham's time. It seems an impossible dream in the time of Jesus where most people could not accept him and did not recognize him even as being from God. And it remains an impossible dream in our day but it's one that is still available to us that we access by faith. And that's what it's, what's at stake in learning to live in the kingdom of God. But what is Abraham, Abraham feeling when God gives him this promise? Well, we get a hint of that too. Jesus says this, Abraham rejoiced. Rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, he saw it and was glad. That's how strong our faith is, our faith can be, that we begin to see realities that we couldn't see before, and we begin to step into and live from these new realities 
like the kingdom of God made available to us. Repent and think out your life strategy again because the good news of the kingdom of God, God's now taking applicants. So we're going to continue to develop this in upcoming weeks. Let's stand and sing together.